0: Well, thank you so much for giving me the stage. It's it's wonderful to be here at the Norwegian Institute for International Affairs. Um, See some old friends as well, um, which is a wonderful opportunity. I had to, to say, we, we had a bit of a fight over the, over the title for this, um, because you said we, I should talk about the international cyber diplomacy agenda, and I said, well, that's, that's too big for me, you know. <laughs> uh, so we, we finally decided to say, at least put in, square, in, in parentheses in between a German perspective, because I don't pretend to be telling you the truth with a capital T. I can tell you how I see, or how Germany sees, the international cyber diplomacy agenda, but obviously an international agenda is something that needs to be discussed and where everybody needs to Uh, to contribute and 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 to speak and um, And one of the things that I find interesting in the in the cyber field is that um, uh, The discussion goes beyond um, the the usual intercourse between government. It also includes um, Other stakeholders industry obviously they have a very strong interest in this uh, civil society academia So it's much more lively and much more interactive debate and I would hope that some of this spills over into the discussion today. So having said that, um, let me see if, if, if I can at least make this piece of technology work. Yes. So why am I starting here? In the 1890s, in, uh, on the outskirts of Berlin, there was a man who drew crowds of spectators with a very strange performance. He dragged the contraption of, of wood and fabric up a hill, uh, somehow climbed into it, started running, and then he leapt into the air. And he flew up to 250 meters uh, before he returned to the ground, mostly unharmed. Um, A few years later, two American inventors called uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright added a combustion engine to a machine that they had uh, designed on, on Lilienthal studies and made it possible to leave the Earth for controlled and sustained flights and others, uh, a whole club of inventors, um, a Frenchman Louis Blériot, a Brazilian Alberto Santos Dumont, they all uh, fulfilled the dream of humanity to slip the surly bonds of earth and dance the skies on silver-lofted wings. And they were inspired by idealism. They were convinced that their marvelous invention would make borders immaterial and would make distances shrink it would foster international communication and understanding. And they were convinced that an age when humans could could fly, when they could communicate, when they could speak to each other almost immediately, such an age would have to be an age of peace. Well, we know what happened to that. Less than 10 years after the first powered flight in 1911, um, uh, there was a, an, an, uh, an air attack or an air raid during the uh, Italian-Turkish war in uh, in Libya. And of course, World War I saw widespread use of air power, including also against civilian targets. And only one generation later, the military campaigns of World War II had become unthinkable without aviation. Now, why have I been telling this story? Because I believe that there may be a lesson here about a technology that was intended for good and became an instrument of warfare. So uh, some 80 years after Otto Lilienthal's groundbreaking or or rather bone-breaking work, um, in a computer lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts, an American engineer named Ray Tomlinson, and Bjorn will smile because he knows the story, uh, uh, Ray Tomlinson did something which was comparably innovative, innovative. He sent the world's first email. Um, Tomlinson was later asked what the contents of that email message was, and he said he didn't quite remember, but he thought it was something like Q-W-E-R-T-Y-U-I-O-P. Okay. Anyway, this uh, message marked the beginning of the internet age. And just as the inventors of the aeroplanes were idealists who believed that they were working for international peace, the creators of the internet the engineers, the users, the political decision makers that were at the time working on, on, on the internet were full of idealism. If you look at documents such as the, the World Summit on Information Society, 2003-2005, you know, um, very late, um, if you look at documents uh, such as this, you can still feel that, that sense of idealism. So, there was the idea of a people centered, inclusive, and development oriented information society where everyone can create, access, utilize, and share information and knowledge, enabling individuals, communities, and peoples to achieve their full potential, etc. 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 It's all wonderful. It's all lovely. And these are all the goals to which we should aspire. But the benign uses of information and communication technology are not the whole story. Just as Today, we all get onto an airliner without much thinking about the military angle of aviation. As a matter of fact, the uh, the internet has uh, made our states, our economies, our societies vulnerable to new attack vectors. And uh, not only critical infrastructures, from electricity to water supply and transportation and finance, can be electronically attacked, but as we've seen, um, over past few years the uh, uh, Even though the very heart of a, a, a country's democracy and political system can be can be attacked using electronic means the DNC hack I think has had a profound impact on the political discourse in the United States. The Macron Leaks uh, was an attempt to do the same. We had an attack on the German Parliament Bundestag in 2015. These are all attempts actually at at, at, at targeting the very heart of democracy. Um, and that needs to be taken quite seriously. Um, I have a strong UN background, so I always try to, to find data sources that are um, undisputed or have a seal of approval, a stamp of approval, of the United Nations. So I, um, I still like to refer to a document which, the, which is a couple of years old. It's the Cyber Index. The Cyber Index was published in 2013 by the United Nations Institute on Disarmament Research. And it kind of develops a baseline <clears throat> of what, which countries around the globe have cybersecurity programs. Um, it's still the only document of this kind which has this UN seal of approval to it which, uh, on it, which is why I still refer to it. So in 2013, um, UNIDIR, found that uh, there were 114 countries that had cybersecurity programs, and 47 of those, so roughly half of those, gave some role to the armed forces. And that's already substantial. That's significant. That means that we have to take it seriously. But those numbers have grown since 2013. I think the conclusion of this is that cyber has moved into an area and grown into an issue which affects our Uh, our security, our politics, and um, it's something which we have to somehow address. We cannot simply wish it away. Uh, We cannot just put the genie back into the bottle. Um, Again, there's a a historical analogy we can make. In 1911, um, there was an an attempt uh, at a meeting of the Institute of International Law to simply ban the use of aircraft for military purposes because there was a fear that aircraft could be used to attack undefended cities and violate international laws governing warfare. Um, So similar attempts are actually similar ideas are around today uh, concerning cyber capabilities, ICT capabilities. Well, we know what became of the idea of banning the military use of aircraft. As diplomats, as security experts, um, we today have uh, to struggle with a new technology, with cyber ICT capabilities. Just as our predecessors were about 100 years ago, um, we're faced with a challenge to international peace and security. What does that mean? Well, um, let me give you, run you quickly through four scenarios that I can discern. The first is um the stuff that uh, I read about in novels that I buy at the air, at the airport. It's the all out cyber war. So there's the idea that um you design a cyber a, a vicious cyber attack that could somehow cripple a country's military force, its economy, and communication and lead to that country being defeated without a shot being fired. That is the stuff as I said of airport novels. Um, it um paints a picture of war which is simply uh, unrealistic. It implies uh, severity, immediacy, uh, measurability of effects, military character, uh, state role, uh, legitimacy, and so on, and so on, and so on. That simply we have not, never seen so far. And I am assured by at least our military experts that uh, they don't think it's a realistic scenario for the time being. So the first scenario, all-out cyber war, is not what I'm not terribly worried about. The second scenario is the limited use of cyber capabilities, of information communication technology capabilities, as part of a larger warfighting effort. That is a much more likely scenario. Um, cyber attacks, in combination with conventional means of conflict, can pose a threat. Just think about it all countries today rely on modern ICT varying extents, very much so in Norway, in Germany, probably without, throughout NATO, um, much less so in, in some countries in, uh, in the global south. But even there, uh, you'd be surprised as to how important um, ICT has become in, some, uh, in, in many parts of, of the global south. You, know, you, 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 go to, you go to Dakar, you go to, to, to Lagos, and you see everybody um, texting each other with, with cell phone. Well, that's nothing else than ICT, information communication te- technology. So it's a, it's a comparably old technology. It's low bandwidth. But still, it's, um, it's electronic communication and people doing their banking online, basically. Um, um, all countries have become reliant on, on ICT. Um, and that presents a, a, a target, even where the military has its own communications network and keep that, keeps that completely distinct from civilian networks. The military cannot cannot function for a very long period of time, for a sustained period of time, if the underlying economy is crippled. So um, what is realistic is the second scenario, the use of ICT capabilities as part of a larger warfighting scenario. The third scenario that we are worried about is the use of ICT as an element in hybrid conflicts. Hybrid inf- conflicts involve multi-layered efforts to destabilize a functioning state, polarize a society. Um, and typically, the aggressor tries to hide, tries to be the good guy, the guy who's standing on the sidelines watching with awe. What's going on there? Oh, we, we didn't do that. Well, we didn't send those unmarked tanks across the border, um, those men in uniforms without patch, uh, 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 national flags on the arm, arms, on the sleeves. Um, we didn't do that. Um, and in such an effort, in a hybrid war effort or hybrid conflict effort, um, cyber capabilities are great tools because cyber lends itself to, uh, to uh, um, camouflage and delaying tactics, to hiding m- multiple, de- uh, multiple routings, um, basically hiding who is the aggressor. And even if experts are telling you, oh, no, we're pretty certain where this cyber attack, where this piece of malware is coming from, the technology allows the aggressor very often to cast doubts, to say, well, you know, are you really, really sure? Um, you know, you're just putting this out there. You're just accusing us because you're always accusing us. But you know, maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it's a false flag operation. And they'll create enough of, of noise in the system. They'll create enough, chal- uh, enough questions in the public mind that it becomes very difficult to make a convincing case as to who the attacking party is. So the use of cyber capabilities, which is an integral part of hybrid warfare, is something to worry about. And the fourth scenario is um, that of a military crisis developing from a cyber incident. Um, We've seen in recent years a number of cases where you had relatively minor incidents, cyber incidents, um, that none of which reached you know, the threshold of, of international concern, of war. Um, but it's always possible that a cyber incident develops an escalatory dynamic. Um, there are historical analogies there as well. You know, I like those. Um, 1914, um, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo certainly wasn't worth starting World War I. But all of a sudden, it happened. And similar dynamics are also conceivable in cyberspace. we have an incident where somebody attacks a power grid in our our countries. All the electricity goes down, huge economic damage. People people might die from the consequences. And we don't know who did it. So we look around. Uh, We go like, oh, it's probably the neighbor over there, because that neighbor over there is always the bad guy. And the neighbor over there goes, no, it wasn't us. How could you say that? And then we, because we're already nervous and, and so on, we say, oh. Hello? Um, you're always the bad guys, and, and, and you know, prove to us that you didn't do it. And the neighbor says, why should we prove anything? You know, if you continue talking this way, then you know, we'll, we'll take you to the security council. Well, no, then we don't talk, talk you to take, take you to the security. We'll, we'll expel all your diplomats. And so the, this, the situation escalates and escalates and escalates. And All of a sudden, it spins out of control. Um, that's a real concern of ours. And we saw something like that, which had the makings of it uh, last year in, in the Gulf when there was an attack on a relatively minor attack, defacing attack on on, uh, websites in Qatar. And the Qatari government uh, was very, very irritated by it. And it led to a crisis that still hasn't really been resolved um, between uh, Qatar and Iran on the one side and Saudi Arabia and and some of Saudi Arabia's allies, on the other hand. Um, It seems contained for the time being. But uh, last summer, we were quite nervous about it. So part of the problem, of course, is that these cyber capabilities don't really fit terribly well into our traditional security strategies, tr- security thinking. Um, we are pretty much used when we when we're thinking about global security, global uh, our our security. Uh, we're pretty much used to thinking in terms of deterrence, right? Um, that's what served us pretty well during, at least during the Cold War. Arguably, also before. Arguably, the Peloponnesian War was was about a failure of deterrence. Anyway, um, the problem is that the traditional notion of deterrence by retaliation, uh, meaning that if you hit me with a nuke, I'll hit you big with a bigger nuke. um, And I have so many nukes that you cannot hit all my nukes, so there will always be one to hit you. Um, that idea of de- of uh, deterrence by retaliation requires that you're very clear in your communication as to what you are uh, trying to deter, what kind of action you're trying to deter. You're limiting it, and who to whom you are addressing your messages, your deterrence. And that, of course, is very, very difficult in cyberspace, where you have a very opaque threat situation where you have oh. Very, very often questions about who perpetrators are who, who the the, the uh, originator of malicious cyber activity is um, You're basically you're poking with a very big very big pole in, in very dense fog uh, And that's not very conducive to uh, deterrence by retaliation nevertheless um, we have been embarking on this path of deterrence by retaliation if you read the the G7 uh, foreign ministers' communiqué that was issued on on Monday in Toronto, it says um, we are concerned about malicious cyber activities of a growing number of state and non-state actors, for which coordinated responses, in keeping with the rule of law and fundamental ri- human rights, are needed, and which foreign ministers are, co- are calling for measured measures aimed at preventing, deterring, discouraging, and responding to malicious cyber acts. That's nothing else than deterrence by retaliation. And of course, NATO has been pursuing the same strategy for a while. Uh, 2014, the Wales summit declaration, cyber attacks can reach a threshold that threatens national and Euro-Atlantic prosperity, security and stability. Their impact could be as harmful to modern societies as a conventional attack. We affirm that cyber defense is part of NATO's core task of collective defense. So that's exactly that, a threat of deterrence by retaliation to cyber attacks. Nevertheless, um, NATO has been, or we're trying, we're we're pursuing deterrence by retaliation. But we have the question if it will really work, because we are basically working with this very big and unwieldy pole and very dense fog. Um, So the question is if deterrence by retaliation really works reliably with regard to ICT. And I would argue that it might be helpful to use a much wider concept. Deterrence, yes, including deterrence by retaliation, but complemented with other other elements. Um, I'm I'm referring here um, to concept developed by Joe Nye um, at, at Harvard University, former Deputy Secretary of State. He basically says you need to have deterrence by retaliation, but also by denial, by entanglement, and by taboo. So the idea of deterrence by by denial is simply that you say, okay, to any p- potential aggressor, you can attack me, um, but the cost of that attack um, will be very high, uh, or will be higher than than the benefit because I'm incredibly resilient. Um, I can I can if I can I can n- not necessarily take revenge. That's deterrence by retaliation. But I can rather I I, I can defend myself extremely well. You know, that's not a very innovative thought. I mean, that's why in the medieval ages we build walls and, and, and moats around, around castles, right? That's, that's deterrence by denial. Deterrence by entanglement is, a, is the second element. Quite interesting. Um, the idea is that an aggressor has less of an incentive to attack if the aggressor's political system, economic system, um, uh, society is is entangled with that of the potential opponent, opposing side, um, because it raises the cost of aggression. Um, And according to that logic, of course, um, the internet, which is the great entangler, right, it makes it possible for us to communicate with everybody else. Uh, It's a great promoter of international trade. The internet should be the great entangler. And as a matter of fact, I would put to you that this is a good reason why we should uh, continue calling for an open, secure, stable, accessible, and peaceful uh, internet environment, because it actually might very well uh, be an element contributing to global stability and security. Um, Nevertheless, I wouldn't want to rely on it entirely, because entanglement also has a flawed track record. it um, historically, um, just just thinking back again to World War I, um, the societies of Europe at the time were incredibly closely entangled. Um, the societies and economies, including the ruling elites, I mean, they were all all related to each other, and it still didn't prevent the outcome of World War One. And uh, according to some statistics I read, it took the European economies until the 1970s to reach the same level of interconnectivity that they had in 1914. So entanglement might work, but it's not perfect. Um, There's also a a conceptual flaw. Entanglement uh, builds on social and economic ties. Um, But international security requires military strategic security. And and those two don't equate necessarily very well. Finally, there's the idea of of deterrence by taboo. That uh, is the idea that. Normative considerations deter actions by imposing reputational costs that damage an actor's soft power beyond the value gained from a given attack. Um, so you're basically, you're just declaring an action off limits. That's something you don't do. Okay? Um, and that's pretty much what we have been doing uh, for a while in the United Nations. Um, we're, uh, we're working to promote common understandings existing and potential threats in the sphere of information security, and possible cooperative measures to address these threats, including norms, rules, and principles for responsible behavior of states, um, confidence-building measures, the issue of the use of I- ICT in conflicts, and how international law applies to the, uh, to the use of these technologies by states. That's the exact wording, by the way, of the uh, mandate of the last two groups of, of uh, UN government experts. Um, So I would argue that this this whole work on on norms, on how international law applies, that's really trying to build entanglement uh, entanglement or deterrence by, I'm sorry, that's really trying to build deterrence by taboo. Now what's interesting to me is that um, uh, each of these non-traditional elements of wider deterrence corresponds to certain issues on the international cyber diplomacy agenda and to specific levels of action. So at the global level, we seek rules for responsible state behavior in cyberspace. So we're trying to build taboos. At the regional level, we try to build confidence that states will engage in rules, and that's seeking mutual entanglement. And at the individual state level, finally, we try to build cyber resilience, and that's really working on denial. I would argue that taking together those elements form a self-reinforcing triangle of international cyber stability and I'm observing that um, more and more states are actually pursuing a uh, cyber diplomacy approach, which looks very much like, like this triangle. So let me be very clear. Um, this triangle is no replacement for a robust cybersecurity policy that includes actions to respond to malicious cyber acts, deterrence by retaliation. Rather, it complements deterrence by retaliation. So when we put it all together, it looks something like this, right? The non-traditional elements of a wider deterrence, com- built in a way, a roof on on the on on the fundament on, the, on the, uh, the fundamental structure that is put there by deterrence by retaliation. Allow me just to quickly go through um, some of the elements. Uh, of this uh, self-reinforcing triangle very quickly. I don't want to take too much of our time. So, looking at the the rules for state oh, for state use of cyber capabilities, um, for responsible state behavior and, and, and cyberspace, that's what we do in the United Nations, as I out, uh, outlined to you. And we've been doing this really since since 2005. In 1998. I'm going back even a little bit further. In 1998, the Russians uh, came to the General Assembly and said, we have a problem. We need to talk about information security. And the rest of the uh, UN General Assembly said, what have you been smoking? Um, but the Russians kept persisting. And in 2005, um, the, the United Nations is, is pretty much like any other organization. Right? If what does an organization do when it is faced with a problem and doesn't have an answer, First, it ignores it. Did that for for seven years, and then finally, it establishes a working group. Right? Study it. That's what the UN did. Um, so they established a group of government experts to work on the issue. The first group of government experts couldn't reach consensus, so it just broke down. Uh, 2009, 2010, there was another one which said, "Well, as a matter of fact, exi- um, as a matter of fact, um, if." ICTUs, or the effects of ICTUs carry significant risks for public safety, the security of nations, and the stability of the globally linked international economy as a whole. So after only 12, this was in 2010, after only 12 years of negotiations, the United Nations finally agreed that, yes, we have a problem. Um, I love love my job sometimes. Um, 2013, there was another one of these groups. Um, That one actually arrived at. What was pretty much considered a, a breakthrough report because it said that international law applies. International law and the United Nations Charter is applicable and is essential to maintaining international peace and stability. And then there was another such group in 2014, 2015 that fleshed out this finding a little bit more. And finally, one in 2016 and 2017 that thought to deepen and universalize the work of its predecessors, and it broke down. Um, The uh, 2016-2017 GG could not reach a consensus. Um, There is a Chairman's Report out there, um, which also indicates um, where the problem was. Uh, Doesn't make it entirely clear. You cannot, the UN doesn't allow you to say, OK, this is where we broke down. But it implies quite clearly where where the problem was. This failure, however, does not mean or this lack of consensus in the 2016-2017 GG does not put into question the, uh, the, the previous three reports, 2010, 2013, 2015. And there's consensus about that, which is quite important. Um, so all these, these three reports stand unaffected. And the question that we are discussing now is uh, where do we go from here? Um, we have a process which has served us well for a number of years, and it broke down in, in le- last June um when yeah you know, we just one one expert left the room saying this doesn't make sense anymore um these were the exact words um where do we go from here um there's any number of of proposals out there and no I won't go through them in detail and you also won't be quizzed on them um but um basically the two the two extremes are either to say let's just continue as we did before let's just have another one of these groups of government experts it's a tried format um, it's it's small it can be handled um, it, it's expert and and the experts can be you know can can build on what has been done in the past etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, the other extreme is a proposal that's been put out there by the group of 77 and China which is to say, actually, this whole thing doesn't make sense anymore. We need to have universal negotiations on an international code of conduct, on, on uh, the use of information technology by states. Um, let's, let's have an open-ended working group to this end. And all the other proposals are, in a way, variations on this theme. Um, but those, those two are the ones that are out there. And I would say that um, of those two extremes, um, having another GGE, well, my British colleague puts, puts it very well. Um, she says, um, continuing to do the same thing, expecting a different outcome, is a sign of madness. That's, I think it's, it's very well put. Um, unless you know, the external factors, the external circumstances change, um, it's difficult to expect why another GGE should have a different outcome from the one in 2017. Um, The people meeting in 2016-2017 were responsible individuals. They had clear mandates. They they knew what they were doing and There was just no ground for consensus. So what would be different in 2019-2020? Maybe maybe things have changed. I don't I personally I don't think that the international environment has become much more conducive to compromise, but maybe I'm mistaken Um, The other proposal the other extreme proposal which is to have a, a, an open-ended working group or even a conference of states um, also begs questions um, I'm, I'm wondering if if the issue is mature enough if enough states really are familiar with the issues um, that they could engage in a substantive discussion I also believe that the disagreement we had, even in the small group among the 25 experts in 2016, 2017, indicates that we're not clear about where the actual issues are. What is it that we're really fighting about? Um, we have very different perspectives on this. And if you are not clear what, you are, what you're fighting about, it's very difficult to negotiate an agreement. So the issue is, in my mind, the issue isn't, mat- isn't mature yet for wider negotiations i'm not excluding it in, in in the future once we have you know narrowed down the areas that need settling once we've 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 honed in on where do we really need a uh, uh, an international agreement but at this point i don't think we've we, we are there yet we have arrived there yet we need something in between and um i would i would put to you there's a there's a proposal out there which a com- couple of countries germany included have uh, have formulated, which is to say, well, let's try and meet somewhere halfway between those two extremes, another GGE and an open-ended working group. The idea is is really to say, have a small group, like a GGE, that meets for a limited period of time, so we're not establishing any new sitting structures. Um, And between its meetings, this group Consults with the wider UN membership and other interested stakeholders. So you have an element of transparency, of openness. You get new, get input from outside the group, but then you go back, and and discuss within a smaller. Basically, it becomes a drafting committee uh, within a smaller group. Uh, you go, you dig deep more deeply into into the issue, and then you go and consult again. Explain where you are. Get input. Get responses. And then you go back into this. This consulting mode um, that's um, that's one of the proposals out there that I, that I'm putting to you as as a, you know halfway between the two extremes, just quickly on the on to the next corner of my of my triangle, the one um, on building confidence that states actually agree to uh, the rules we have for for uh, responsible state behavior in cyberspace. That's mostly done, actually, not at the global level. right? Rules, we agree at the global level. Confidence building, we usually don't don't do at the global level. It becomes unwieldy. Confidence building is what's usually done at the regional level. There's a good reason for that. The reason, reason is that confidence building conflict resolution measures are most needed at the regional level. If you think about it, most conflicts between states are regional conflicts. The global conflict between two countries that are far away is very rare. It's usually between, uh, conflict usually happens between neighbors It's over things like border delineation, treatment of ethnic minorities, sharing of joint resources, water fisheries, whatever. That's what, uh, what leads to conflict between nations. It's, um, so it makes sense to try and do conflict resolution at a regional level. And in Europe, we have a good tradition of this. Um, we have established during the Cold War the OSC at the time it was the CSC, the Conference on Security of Cooperation in Europe. Um, it's now the OSC, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and that actually has been very active in the cyber field. Um, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but the OSC has been working um, since 2011 on the issue. It has developed two sets of confidence-building measures specifically dedicated to addressing mitigating um, cyber conflict um, or risks stemming from the use of information communication technologies. And maybe what's very interesting is that the first of these sets of OSCE CBMs was agreed in December 2013 at the Ministerial Council in Kiev. Now, if you think back to December 2013 at the Ministerial Council in Kiev, what was happening? That was just while the Maidan revolution was going on. we had been really, really working very, very hard on, on negotiating that text, And I was convinced, when, when, when we had finally reached consensus, I was convinced that these CBMs would never be implemented, that the OSCE would not get down to doing it. And I was completely wrong. This was for, for years after 2013. This was one field where all participating states were really engaging positively and proactively. And we made really, really good progress We've, Slightly taken, we've, we've, since, since last summer, I'm observing a slowdown. Um, but I'm hoping that we can, can pick up again. And as a matter of fact, there has been a, a positive signal at the last ministerial council in, in Vienna when um, the participating states did agree on a ministerial council decision dedicated to cyber issues. Now, maybe I should explain this a little bit. In the OSCE world, uh, a ministerial council decision is pretty much the equivalent to finding the holy grail. Um, They they are very very rare Um, Getting getting uh, The Ministerial Council is the highest body of the OSC and getting all 57 uh, Ministers to agree on a text is is almost impossible The only regular exception is to say okay. We'll meet again next year. They they can always agree on that, but that's the only thing Um, So having a Ministerial Council decision two now we had one in 2016 and one in 2017 Having two ministerial council decisions on on information communication technology indicates that the participating states are very, very interested in controlling cyber and conflict stemming from cyber in the OSCE area. So that's good. And there are a number of other regional organizations that are embarking on similar programs. Interestingly enough, relatively early was the African Union, which adopted a a cyber stability charter more focused on cyber crime, um, but still. Um, adopted such a charter in 2014 the african union ha- uh, the the uh, organization for american states has a program um the asean regional forum very interesting because it's i think the only regional organization which brings both north and south korea together um has a a a work plan on cyber so a number of regional organizations have uh these kinds of uh of of cyber activities um and um, they deserve our support. Now, very quickly, moving on to the third element of uh, of um, my triangle. Oh no, sorry. Um, the the rules and the confidence building measures are all great and wonderful, but they don't make a lot of sense if. Not all states are in a in a uh, in a position to contribute to this game. If um, if not all states are in a in a position to contribute to a minimum of of cybersecurity, why is that? Basically, because the the internet is a global web of webs, and from any point in that web of webs, um, and a, and a, a malicious use of cyber of cyber tools can be. Initiated, and so that that web that net has a number of, of soft spots, and uh, any fisherman will tell you if, if you have a if you have a net and you have one soft spot or two soft spots, that's where the web the net will break and it will <coughs> tear apart. Um, and so uh, this is a rather uncomfortable uh, uh, analogy because it means we have to really make an effort to bring all countries into a situation where, at the, at the very minimum, they can contribute to a minimum standard of of, of cybersecurity, of ICT security, contribute to deterrence by denial. Because what's happening in Somalia can actually have an effect on the security of Norway. That's a pretty scary thought. Um, it can certainly have an effect on the security of Germany. Um, and that's a huge challenge. Um, I don't think we've even... Seriously begun addressing this challenge um, but we need to do it we for on our side we have uh, Decided in, to establish a German Institute of International Cybersecurity to do our bit to this end um, Other than taking the decision um, we haven't made a heck of a lot of progress That's also due to our domestic politics, which have been keeping us uh, uh um, basically, in, in, in a kind of, a, of of limbo for for nine months um, until quite recently when we formed the new government. But I'm I'm looking very f- much forward to, to doing this now, establishing this new institute for international cybersecurity and uh, um, and seeing its it, its operations to begin. So, I began my presentation with an analogy, that of aviation technology, which about 100 years ago offered so many hopes for a better, peaceful future, and which then became an instrument of unprecedented warfare. And I believe that we need to avoid a similar development where cyber is concerned. This means finding a consensus on the rules for responsible use of cyber capabilities by states. It means building confidence that states will adhere to these rules. And it means enabling all states to behave in a rule-abiding confidence-inspiring and, ultimately, security-building manner. That is a rather tall order. I am still optimistic that it can be fulfilled. And I think it's time to get to it. So with that, thank you very much.